Welcome to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Richard Harris. Hello, everybody. I'm Richard, and uh, I want to welcome you to uh, today's Truth and Liberty uh, live call-in show episode. Um, today's date is February the 19th. However, today's show is actually being recorded uh, earlier on January 30th. Um, and uh, so uh, today's show is actually a pre-recorded episode. And so we're not going to have live call-in today, although we do value your feedback. If you'd like to comment, please feel free to message us. But today's show is going to be a great program. I'm really uh, excited about the opportunity to share with you today. Um, I'm, uh, today's program is going to address a very specific subject, um, and that is the new concept, the new label that is being bantered about uh, called Christian nationalism. All right. So Christian nationalism, you see it in the news increasingly, uh, hear it from leftists uh, increasingly. And uh, I believe that this subject is really, really important because I believe the idea that is behind Christian nationalism is a very dangerous concept. Really what's happening here is Christian nationalism is a label that is being used by the left, primarily by leftists, uh, to slander and slur conservative Christians who are involved in government and in politics and in matters of public life. Um, uh, recently, uh, James Carville, who he's getting pretty old now, but he was a primary advisor to uh, President Bill Clinton back in the 1990s and has continued to be a leftist talking head. He was on the Bill Maher show and he said something that was absolutely shocking that ought to set, uh, set off alarm bells and red flags and warning signs throughout Christian circles in America. James Carville said that he was talking about the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, and he said he's a Christian nationalist. And then he said, Christian nationalists are more dangerous to America than Al-Qaeda. Now listen to that. Think about what he said. He's basically saying that Bible-believing Christians who dare to be involved in government are a bigger threat to our country than the Muslim jihadis who slaughtered 3,000, over 3,000 innocent Americans on 9-11, not to mention thousands and thousands of other people around the world. Rob Reiner, famous director, recently released a film, a so-called documentary called God and Country, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. At the date that I'm recording this, I haven't seen the film yet because it's not available. I hope that by the date this airs, I will have had an opportunity to see it. But based on comments that Mr. Reiner has made in the media, I am extremely concerned that this documentary is actually going to be a hit piece against Christian conservatives who dare to be involved in government. He's very cleverly reaching into the Christian church to find pastors and Christian leaders who don't believe in getting involved and using them to advocate for the proposition that Bible Christianity actually teaches us not to get involved in government. 
who are saying that those of us who are advocating for involvement, for influence in government and public life are an aberration from true biblical Christianity. This is a very dangerous idea. Right here in our own town of Woodland Park, Colorado, where Andrew Womack, Andrew Womack Ministries is located, Andrew has dared to speak out and to become involved in politics. And in fact, um, we, you know, because we live here, because our students, uh, many of them live in this community, uh, we have begun to get involved in local politics a little bit. And the left doesn't like it. And they, are, they have sent someone to Woodland Park, Colorado, an, an investigative journalist who's going to be speaking this coming Friday, February the 2nd, on the subject of Christian nationalism, its impact in Woodland Park and on our, quote, democracy at large. It's clearly going to be about Andrew and this ministry and our influence in this community. Josh Harley, Harley, Holly, excuse me, Senator from Missouri recently wrote an article called Our Christian Nation. Every one of you should Google and find that article. Uh, we'll probably be posting it uh, on our website at Truth and Liberty or sending it out by email, but every one of you need to read it. It's an excellent article. I myself have published an article on our website um, about Christian nationalism, and our uh, good friend Alex McFarland has also written an article which we recently uh, posted on our site and are sending out by email. Uh, I'm doing these things because I believe that this notion of Christian nationalism is the biggest threat to religious freedom in America that we have seen in our lifetime. Now, uh, joining me on today's program are two men who I have great respect for, who are scholars, who are uh, devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and also who serve on the Truth and Liberty Board. Uh, the first one is Bill Federer, and he's going to be coming on after the first break. Bill is a renowned historian, um, one of the smartest, most knowledgeable, and informed people I have ever met in my entire life. He's also one of the most humble, genuine, caring, and loving people. Alex McFarland is going to join us in the third uh, segment of the show today. Alex, as you know, is one of our hosts on Truth and Liberty. He's also a board member here, and he uh, heads up the Biblical Worldview program at Karis Bible College is an evangelist and an apologist, a published author, and so many things I could say about both of these guys. But before we uh, get to their appearance on the show, I want to take the rest of this first segment to just share from my heart a little bit about this subject. Christian nationalism, um, I'm not sure where it originated the phrase, but it has become a label, a disparaging label that the left is using against conservative Christians. Basically, it's describing a belief that America's national purpose and America's government is uh, connected to gospel Christianity. Now, it doesn't mean that our government, well, let me, before I get into a, an apologetics on this whole thing, I just want to define what is Christian nationalism. It's also a belief that America was founded primarily by Christians as a Christian nation. That America's policies and laws, a belief system that America's policies and laws should reflect biblical values and a biblical worldview. And that our nation should acknowledge God, acknowledge the Bible, and that our common Christian faith uh, should be shared publicly um, through public prayer, uh, displays of Christian symbols, and things of this nature. Um, that we, uh, we utilize Christian slogans like, In God We Trust, printed on our money. That we allow the display of 
uh, holiday symbols on government property, that we post the Ten Commandments on government buildings. You see, um, if that's what Christian nationalism then is, then I'm, all, I'm on board with that. But what the left is cleverly and very subtly doing is they're trying to link Christian nationalism with violence. Like, like saying that it was white Christian nationalists who were behind uh, the so-called attacks on the Capitol on January 6th. They're trying to say that uh, many conservative Christians come from the South in the United States, the Southern states, and you know Southern states, they're racist and bigoted and Jim Crow and slavery. Therefore, the left is saying that Christian nationalists are also white supremacists and white racists, and that Christian nationalists are, are tied together with so-called conservative conservative extremist groups that believe in violence, like people who dare to advocate for gun ownership and gun rights. All right. So this is a very confusing subject and it's super important that we understand when we're talking about it and considering it, what, how is the person speaking defining the issue of Christian nationalism? Uh, when the way the left is using it now, the way that Bill Maher used it in, uh, in his appearance, and that probably, I can't say for sure, but that Rob Reiner is going to depict it, is really a bigoted slur against a massive portion of the population of the United States of America. And the underlying tenet of this whole attack on Bible-based Christian thinking and influence in government, the whole tenor of it is an idea that our involvement in government is illegitimate, that we really don't have a right to express our opinions, to express our votes or our viewpoints through voting for conservative Christian candidates, and that the policies and principles of biblical Christianity have no place in public life. Make no mistake, this is the end goal of the, the, the idea that is being pushed, the narrative today by the left on Christian nationalism. It is really and truly, hear me church, it is a pretext for persecution and eventual disenfranchisement of conservative Christians from American public life. The Bible warns against the rise of this spirit. There is in scripture predicted a one world government that requires the worship of man and punishes, excludes, and even kills all those who refuse to participate in that idolatry. Revelation chapter 13 verse 7 says, And it was given unto him, it's referring to the beast who is the Antichrist, to, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are writ not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And then the, uh, the next few verses talk about something we call the false prophet, another beast that arose, who causes mankind to worship the Antichrist. And then Revelation 13 picks up in verse 15 and says, And he, the false prophet, had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he caused all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
This spirit of Antichrist, this desire for tyranny has one ultimate purpose. It's, it's inspired by Satan through mankind, and the goal and purpose of it is to stamp out and to eradicate the Word of God and the witness for Jesus Christ from the earth. This is the purpose. The Christian nationalism theme that is coming out of the left is a precursor to this. Now, they have the gall and the temerity to actually accuse us, Christian, uh, Christians who believe in the Bible and desire to influence government with biblical principles and God's standards for morality and righteousness. They accuse us of being like Nazi Germany, uh, uh, of being like Nazi Germany. The whole phrase, Christian nationalist, conjures up vague images of Nazi tyranny, right? National, national socialism. In Nazi Germany, propagandists identified a group of people, a segment of the population based on race and religion, and those were the Jews. They blamed that group for the sufferings of the nation, of the sufferings of the German nation, and they accused them, the Jews, of betraying Germany and subverting their government. Does that sound familiar? They, wore, they forced them to wear yellow stars and then rounded them up closed and confiscated their businesses, property, and homes, pushed them into ghettos, and then eventually into concentration camps, slave labor, and then eventually execution, what Hitler and his cronies called the final solution. And six million Jews were murdered through this strategy. In the United States of America, we now see the left, and make no mistake about it, when historians say that Nazis were of the left, they are abs or of the right, they are wrong. Nazis were socialists, that is a leftist ideology. The difference between them and communists was, Nazis wanted to exalt the nation state of Germany and the ethnic race they called Aryanism, whereas communism was one world-esque, meaning all races and nations would be united whereas the Germans wanted to dominate the world. So it was national socialism, okay? So the left today is calling us nationalists to conjure up images of that. But it has always been the left that wants to categorize people in groups and, in, and, and by race, and, to, and, and this strategy is a Marxist, communist, leftist strategy of identifying a group of people in the population that oppose what they want to do, and then you demonize that group, you delegitimize that group, you then disenfranchise that group and persecute them so that you can remove the political opposition to what you want to do. And mark no, make no mistake, that is exactly the ultimate strategy and intent of the Christian nationalism stigma and slur that we are hearing today against Bible-believing Christians in this nation who want to influence our government according to God's standards. The truth is that the Bible teaches about all aspects of human life, including government. The Bible tells us about the nature of man. It talks about marriage and family, sexual relations and conduct. It talks about parenting and the rights of parents and responsibilities of parents. It talks about education of children, the military, immigration, due process, the rule of law, the purpose and function of government, and the standards for right and wrong. And I could go on and on. God's will is that mankind follow His standards in every aspect of life, that man follow His Word. 
In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commanded us, his followers, as follows. He said, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Orthodox Christianity, traditional Christian doctrine has always understood that it's the duty of Christians to take the light of God's Word and of the Gospel and of the Spirit of God into all aspects of human life, whether that is government, whether that is business, whether that is family, whether that is the arts or entertainment or any other sphere. Christians are called by God to go into this, these places with the light of the Gospel, to share the truth of God's Word, and to invite people to submit themselves to the authority of God's Word. God has never called us as Christians to force people to submit through violence or coercion. Never. And this is where Christians in the past or so-called Christians have got it wrong. The Inquisition, the Crusades, other things like this, uh, pogroms in Europe against the Jews, persecution against other people. But the Protestant Reformation is threw off that, those lies and brought in an era of understanding of the gospel which led to an understanding of the purpose of government. And this gave rise to the principles on which the United States of America was founded. The principles of liberty for all people, of equality of all men under the law, of the rule of law, and of the responsibility of mankind to follow God's principles in government. Romans chapter 13 tells us about the purpose of government. It says there in beginning in verse 4, Referring to the king and his ministers, it says, He is the minister or the servant of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake, for this cause pay ye tribute or taxes also, for they are God's ministers or servants attending continually upon this thing. Paul the Apostle, Peter does it as well in 1 Peter, I think it's chapter 4, uh, maybe chapter 2, but he admonishes us as believers to submit ourselves to government because government, government is there because God wants it there. And God wants government to uh, restrain evil, to punish evil and reward good. Well, I have a question for all of you and to all the leftists out there. How are people in government supposed to know what is good and what is right? This is the question. How do they discern it? And this, my friends, is the dividing issue on the subject of Christian nationalism. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. I'm going to talk about this later in the show. But Jesus said, he said that you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It's good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. And verse 14, Jesus goes on, he says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hid. But in verse 15, he says, um, Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. And then he says, Let your light shine before men, in verse 16, that they may know or that they may see um, your good works and give glory to your Father which is in heaven. Again, believers are called by God 
to good works and to be an influence in the world and in the culture. And government is no different. Government is not an exception. We are called by God to go into government, to participate in government by running for office, by supporting candidates, by speaking, writing, advocating, voting for Christian candidates or good candidates, and in every other way that we find possible, not to force people but to, be to believe, but to hold up a light, to be salt, so that those who are in government can know what the standards of God are and can implement righteous policies and principles so that government will be effective in restraining evil and rewarding good. Proponents of Christian nationalism, uh, of, of the label, the leftist version of this, um, are really and truly what they're saying is, okay, Christians, these values and, and standards, they're okay for you. If you want to live a righteous life or whatever you think according to the Bible, you can do that, but you have no right to bring it into the public square. The phrase, the label, the pejorative label of Christian nationalism that they're using is really nothing more than repackaged, listen now, repackaged radical secularism. But this time it's different. Because this time they are now saying, not only is our government secular, but you Christians, you're a threat. And you have no right to bring your ideas into the public square. You have no right to stand up for what you believe in. Um, here's the thing, guys. The principles of God's word that relate to government policy, and there are hundreds of them. These principles, if they are true, then they are true always, and they are true everywhere. A Christian cannot apply them in his private life, but pretend they don't exist in his public life. A Christian cannot, in a matter of conscience, pre understand and know that God's Word has standards for sexual uh, behavior and for marriage and for children and for genders in his private life, but then go into public life and adhere to other standards and advocate and agree and consent to other standards. This, brothers and sisters, would be a violation of our conscience and it would be hypocrisy. But this is exactly what the left is saying we have to do. They say you, they are, they are really and truly saying you have to violate your own conscience or stay home. You have no right to be here and express your biblical point of view. So, the truth of the matter, now they accuse us of wanting to force our views on other people, to force Christianity on others. They're conjuring up an image that we are advocating for some kind of religious tyranny, and this is, I would submit to you, is absolutely false. People, Christians get involved in government, people remain 100% free to believe whatever they believe and to speak their mind. We actually believe in freedom of speech, freedom of access, universal participation in government. People remain free, but we have to decide as a nation, America must decide, what will our laws be? There's no way, no way around that question. We have to decide this. And in order to decide that, we have to decide what is right and what is wrong. And in order to decide what is right and what is wrong, we have to decide what is true. 
This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the divide is over Christian nationalism. The humanist, the secularist would say, man gets to decide what is right, what is true. We get to decide this without regard and without reference to the Bible, God, Christianity, or any sort of religious accountability. This is what the secularists, the Bill Mars of the world, the, the, the Rob Reiners of the world, this is what they believe, okay? Um, recently on the in the House of Representatives on the floor, Congressman Jerry Nadler of New York rebuked another fellow member of the House for daring to read the Bible in session, saying that book has no place here. Mr. Nadler was totally wrong as a matter of history and as a matter of morality and as a matter of right and wrong. But this is what they believe. You see, so the, the question of who gets to say what is right and wrong? This question is inescapable in the matters of government because all laws are based on morality. We must address this question. Can we, um, will our laws be based on what God says or will our be, laws be based on what man says? This is the struggle and this is the debate. And, and brothers and sisters, I want to share with you that America's history is rich and, and thoroughly saturate, saturated with evidence that America was built by Christians and that Christians uh, built this nation on biblical principles. The Mayflower Compact, when the pilgrims first landed, from the very beginning, their document says, in the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign King James. See, they're loyal to the government. But then they go on to say, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, do by these presents, and it goes on to say, join ourselves into a civil body politic. The pilgrims were saying we're going to establish a civil government that will glorify God and serve to advance the Christian faith. Now, they weren't saying the government is the same thing as religion. We're not going to compel people to believe. We're not going to punish people for not believing in Christianity or Jesus. But our government will be based on Christian biblical principles, and therefore it will be conducive to the advancement of the gospel, the betterment of society, and the glory of God. And we see this again in the Declaration of Independence, 150 years later, when our founding fathers said that it's the laws of nature and nature's God that give us the right to separate from Great Britain and establish our own kingdom. Today, you don't know this. People don't know this. But that phrase, the laws of nature and nature's God, is an express acknowledgement that it is our duty as, as human beings to discover God's standards and to make sure that our laws and our conduct submit to His standards. It's taken right out of William Blackstone. William Blackstone, his uh, commentaries on the laws of England, he was the greatest jurist of the day in England. And he said that it, we are created beings and therefore it is our duty it is incumbent upon us as created beings to discover the will of our maker in all things. He said the will of our maker can be found in two places. Number one, in nature. But because our understanding and our minds have been darkened through sin, God has been merciful to us and He's revealed His will in another place, the Holy Scriptures. And the, the will of God, the law of God that's found in those two places can be called the law of nature and the law of 
of Revelation. Our founders called it the law of nature and nature's God. It's the same thing. So our laws, our conduct, our government must be submitted to and consistent with those laws. And this is the overarching standard that governs us. This is what our nation was built on. And from those principles and scriptures, our founders went on to say in the famous language of the Declaration that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed with their Creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. You see, our founders drew this from the pages of Scripture. All right, well, we're going to take a break now for 90 seconds, and after that, we're going to welcome our good friend, board member, Bill Federer, onto the program. So we'll be right back after this. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we have big plans to make a big impact. If you want to be a part of turning our nation back to God, I want to invite you to become a supporter of Truth and Liberty. You can go on our website at truthandliberty.net to the donate page and make a gift there. And you can also sign up to be uh, make a recurring automatic gift of $5 or more per month, and then you'll become a Truth and Liberty member. And uh, our gifts to Truth and Liberty are not tax deductible, but I promise you God sees your generosity. So go to Truth and Liberty and become a member today. With practical government, you have experts in the fields that are sharing their perspective, wisdom and experience. It's not available anywhere else in the world. We're going to teach a Christian heritage of our American government. They're going to learn about the Founding Fathers. We're teaching the Constitution, how government operates, practical skills and field study. No matter where you're coming from, the world needs you. Whatever God's calling you to do, you're able to do it. To learn more, visit practicalgovernmentschool.com. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. All right, guys, well, we're back here on the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show, and I'm uh, super thankful to have you joining today. Uh, and uh, we just finished our first segment where um, I laid out just a little bit of the principles uh, that from the Bible and elsewhere that show that this whole, this whole left-wing bigoted slur of Christian nationalism against us uh, is, is wrong. It's uh, rooted in tyranny. It's rooted in the spirit of Antichrist. It's, it's violation. It's a violation of America's founding principles and of everything that, um, you know, of, of our entire national identity. And so um, I could go on and on with lots of quotations and other evidence from history, but when it comes to history, let me tell you, you don't want to hear from me. You want to hear from someone who's a true authority. And uh, so, that, so I'm really excited and, and honored at this point to be able to bring on uh, my good friend, board member of Truth and Liberty, historian extraordinaire, the founder of American Minute, uh, Bill Federer, who all of you know because he's been on our show for so long. But Bill, thank you so much for coming on the show today to help me uh, uh, talk about the subject of Christian nationalism. Richard, great to be on, and it's a very important topic. 
Well, it's always good to have you on. I always am guaranteed to learn something when I talk to you, both on and off camera. So it's great to have you. Well, Bill, I, I just spent the first hour, half hour of our program laying out kind of my, uh, some of my views about this idea of Christian nationalism. To me, this is, um, this is the most dangerous concept to come into the public discourse in possibly my, my lifetime. I think that Christian nationalism is actually a pretext for laying the, it's a, they're, they're laying the groundwork for future increased persecution against Christians in this nation. Can you help us understand a little bit more what is really going on with this idea that the left is pushing? Because to me, it's a, it's a slur, it's a label that they're using against conservative Bible-believing Christians who try to get involved in government. What's your view of it? Well, you know, it was in 2001 where 9-11 happened and Newsweek magazine had a front cover that said, God bless America. And uh, one of the things that we see is that America's always had a faith in God. Now the word Christian nationalism, it used to be called Christian patriotism. And every president, Democrat and Republican encouraged it. And uh, George Washington, in his address, May 2nd, 1778, said to the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to laud the more distinguished character of Christian. So here we have first president having patriotism and Christianity in the same verse, same quote. Lincoln, his inaugural address said intelligence, patriotism, Christianity, and a firm reliance on him who has never yet forsaken this favored land are still competent to adjust in the best way all our present difficulty. He has the words right next to each other in his first inaugural, patriotism, Christianity, Teddy Roosevelt, Republican. And in the deep South, the Democrats were having lynchings. The KKK, the, the uh, vigilante groups, the black codes, the Jim Crow laws. I spoke at an event just last week and I'm uh, a lady said that we were originally from Alabama, but my uncle was lynched by the Democrats in Alabama. And so my dad moved our family to Michigan. But uh, Theodore Roosevelt, December 3rd, 1908, said as Bishop Galloway of Mississippi has said, the mob lynches a Negro. Every Christian patriot in America needs to lift up his voice in loud and eternal protest against the mob spirit. And Franklin Roosevelt, World War II, said the whole world is divided between pagan brutality and the Christian ideal. We choose human freedom, which is the Christian ideal. I don't think anybody's gonna accuse FDR of being a Christian nationalist. And here's Eisenhower, 1954. Now any group that binds itself together to awaken us all is a dedicated patriotic group that can well take the Bible in one hand and the flag in the other and wow. march ahead. So they saw no problem in supporting our country and supporting Christianity. Now, I have um, a PowerPoint. I don't know if you can see that there. Yes, but, we do. Uh, in 1965, 93% of Americans identify themselves as Christian. 93% made up of 69% Protestant, 24% Catholic, and then 3% Jewish. So you have 96% were Judeo-Christian. And nobody had a problem 
with being Christian and wanting to protect our nation. Uh, FDR, during World War II, passed out Gideon's New Testaments and Book of Psalms to all the soldiers. Blue ones to the Navy, brown ones to the Army. I have a copy of one. And here is a, a Democrat president that was elected four times, a very popular Democrat president. And in the foreword, he says, as commander in chief, I take pleasure in commending the reading of the Bible to all who serve in the armed forces of the United States. So he had no problem being in the armed forces, defending our nation and reading the Bible. And then November 1st, 1940, he said, those forces hate democracy and Christianity as two phases of the same civilization. They oppose democracy because it is Christian. They oppose Christianity because it preaches democracy. Now, the word democracy has two meanings. One is the actual form of government where everybody has to be at every meeting every day and vote on every issue. Uh, the founders did not want that because, number one, there's no way everybody in the country could show up at one spot. Uh, but number two, uh, the people could be swayed easily with um, a mob spirit. But uh, the second use of the word democracy is a general reference to a popular government where the people get to rule themselves. And that's the way that he took it. So they oppose democracy and Christianity. Um, and so another quote, an FDR fireside chat, 1942, this great war effort shall not be imperiled by a handful of noisy traitors, betrayers of America, betrayers of Christianity itself. So he thought that if you're betraying Christianity, you're also betraying the nation. And then September 1st, 1941, preservation of these rights is vitally important to the whole future of Christian civilization. And so here's a Democrat president, 1941, wanting to preserve Christian civilization. And um, uh, now, so number one, nationalism was the symbol back then was called patriotism. So Christian nationalism back then was called Christian patriotism. Now, nationalism depends on what nation you're in. If you're in a socialist, communist, or Islamist nation, you have no individual rights, right? Nazi stands for what? National Socialist Workers Party. Here's a socialist named system, and the Jews had no rights, communist, Right? You have the USSR, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, but they, Lenin said socialism is a transition phase to communism, and you have no rights. They can arrest you and ship you off to Siberia. Islamists countries, uh, non-Muslims have no rights. And so in these totalitarian systems, the nation does not give rights. Nationalism is bad, because you're wanting to preserve a nation where people don't have any rights. Democracies and republics, and America was set up as a democratically elected constitutional republic. Uh, we are a nation that is founded on individual rights. We want to protect individual rights. So nationalism is good or bad, depending on what nation you're in. And so um, in the, examining this in America, the idea of individual rights comes from where? It comes from the Bible. Uh, that each person is made in the image of God, and this God is not a respecter of persons. Simple, revolutionary, because the rest of the world, they don't believe that you're made in the image of God. 
atheistic countries, there is no God. In Islam, Allah has no image. You can't be in his image. Uh, Hinduism, there's 300 million different gods, you know. And um, Harry S. Truman said, religion and democracy are founded on the worth and the dignity of the individual. Dictatorship is founded on the doctrine that the individual amounts to nothing. The state is the only thing that counts. Sort of like the French Revolution. Their mm -hmm. motto was liberty, equality, fraternity. Sounds nice, doesn't work. Liberty is experienced individually. Fraternity is their word for socialism. It's the collective, the group, the state, the mob. And equality can be understood two ways. In America, it was equal treatment before the law. In France, it was everyone having an equal amount of stuff, equity. And if the fraternity, the group, the collective thinks you have too much stuff, guess what? The benefit of the collective outweighs the benefit of the individual. And they can use their collective power, the power of the state, to crush your individual liberties, confiscate all your stuff and kill you and redistribute your stuff. So America is a nation that you have rights from a creator. Government's job is to guarantee to you your God-given rights. Atheistic, socialist countries, there is no creator. You get your rights from the state, and your worth is only dependent on how well you can serve the state. Eisenhower said this, democracy is nothing in the world but a spiritual conviction that each of us is enormously valuable because of a certain standing before our own God. But in atheistic countries, there is no God. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Our Nation Versus Other Nations. Our nation, he said, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, and that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. So nationalism over here is a nation that has equality and the people get to rule themselves. So nationalism depends on what nation you're in. And other countries, if you do a, a survey, your worth is dependent on what group you belong to. Uh, so in India, they have four major castes that you're born into. You have no say and you can't change it. The top caste is the uh, Brahmin, they're near divinity, and the lowest caste are the untouchables, the Dalits, and you got to clean the sewers. And even if you do a really good job, you cannot graduate in this life. You're stuck. Uh, so those are nations where you do not have equality. Egypt would have social classes. The Pharaoh um, it was a upper class, and even when the Ptolemies, after Alexander the Great, the, the Greeks ruled Egypt. And so the Greek ruling class, like Cleopatra, they didn't even, many of them didn't even speak Egyptian. They were just the ruling class. China, they had the 100 family surnames. And if you were one of these insider families, you're always going to be a somebody. And if you're not, you're Jajamin, you're base people. There's not equality. Islam, if you're a male member of the Ummah, the community, you're worth more than a female. Uh, in the fundamental Muslim countries, a uh, man can have four wives. A woman cannot have four husbands. Not, not that any woman would want four husbands, but there's not equality. And then Muhammad said a woman's mind is deficient, so it takes two women to testify in court against one man. There's not equality in that Islamic system. And then, of course, infidels, non-Muslims are not equal to Muslims.
Europe, they had uh, this class system where if you're royalty, you're a duke, you're a lord, you're somebody, and if you're a peasant, you're nobody. Beethoven was giving piano lessons to a Czech duke's daughter. They fell in love. She was not allowed to marry him because she's the daughter of a duke and he's a piano teacher. You can do better than that. <laughs> Communist countries, if you're a member of the CCP, you're worth more than some peasant that's picking rice. Um, atheistic countries, your worth is dependent on your utility. If you can contribute to the state, you're worth more. If not, you're voter off the island. And now we have what's called woke or intersectionality. So if you're belonging to a group that's a, uh, a certain race, a certain sexual uh, orientation, a certain whatever, that your worth goes up dependent on what group you belong to. And if you're not part of those groups, your worth is lower. And in America, we say that you have a worth irregardless of any group that you might belong to. You're, you're worth something because you individually are made in the image of the creator. And this creator is not a respecter of persons. And since you get rights from a creator, the purpose of the nation, the purpose of the nation's government is to guarantee to you your creator given rights. And um, so nationalism in America is a government from the consent of the governed. Citizens are guaranteed the rights of freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom to determine your own destiny. So we want to preserve our nation, where in other countries, nationalism is bad. And, um, and then finally, uh, nationalism is the, is the opposite of globalism. I'm going to skip past some stuff. So nationalism is the opposite of globalism. There are people that are globalists, like Klaus Schwab, and he said, by 2030, you will own nothing, but you'll be happy. Own nothing, own nothing. That sort of sounds like Karl Marx, where he said the theory of communism may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. You'll own nothing. So Klaus Schwab wants to have world communism. He wants everybody in the world to own nothing. Karl Marx said, theory of communism summed up, you won't own anything. The state will own it all, and the state's smarter than you all, and, and they'll distribute it to who they want, and it's discretionary. They'll always distribute to their friends and supporters, and they'll always hold back from someone that's not their friend and their supporter. Um, uh, Jack uh, Posebeck and Human Events uh, said, um, the Great Reset is very much like communism. Of course, Klaus Schwab wants this Great Reset. They'll tell you it's about diversity, equality, climate, but what they want is total government. And then uh, Impermiss Magazine had a quote from Klaus Schwab. He said, uh, Klaus Schwab theory or Mallet right that if the past five centuries in Europe and America have taught us anything, it is that acute crises contribute to boosting the power of the state. So the Great Reset is a global crisis, an orchestrated global crisis, climate, healthcare, vaccine, um, uh, currency, Racism. Uh, yeah. central bank digital currency, CBDC. Uh, they want to have orchestrated crises so that people will panic and go to the government and say, help. And the government will say, we're glad you asked. We're all ready for this. We'll help. But it's an exchange for your freedom. Very similar to Egypt. There's a famine. The people need food. The government says, we'll give you food, but it's an exchange 
for your cattle, your lives, your lands, your children, so forth. Henry Louis Macon said, the urge to save humanity is almost always only a false face for the urge to rule it. And uh, so uh, the idea of nationalism, um, number one, it used to be called patriotism. So Christian nationalism used to be called Christian patriotism and every president, Democrat and Republican encouraged it. Number two, nationalism depends on what nation you're in. You're in a socialist nation, an Islamist nation, nationalism's bad. You're in a country where the country exists so that you have rights that the government cannot take away and that it's government from the consent of the governed. Nothing happens unless you approve it. In our nation, it's good. It's good to preserve our nation. And then thirdly, nationalism is the opposite of globalism. And glo globalism began with the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. That was the first attempt at one guy wanting to rule. Now, the population of the world was centered over there in the Mesopotamian Valley. And Nimrod wanted to build a tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. And, um, uh, and so uh, God comes down, confuses the languages, and the people scatter. And they scatter into language groups mm -hmm. that turn into nations. Nations was God's invention to postpone a one world government. <laughs> Take the population of the world, break it into subgroups. They'll always be competing against each other, canceling each other out so that no one gets to control it all and, um, and be the Antichrist. And so, but every generation you have somebody wanting to conquer other nations. They're not content with what they got. They want to conquer other nations. And any of these conquerors, and whether it's Alexander the Great, uh, or Attila the Hun, or Genghis Khan, or Napoleon, if they hadn't have died, they'd have been happy to use the most modern military advances to conquer the world. And, and so that sense, death is a blessing because the devil has to go back and start from scratch again to find some uh, ambitious person uh, that um, has no scruples and doesn't believe in God and, uh, and wants power. And um, Jesus, in talking to his disciples, said, the kings of the Gentiles rule over them, but it shall not be so among you. He that's, that is greatest among you shall be the servant of all. I am among you as he that serveth. So we're talking about kingdoms and the world kingdoms are top down, ruled by fear, <laughs> by some dictator. And God's kingdom is bottom up through service, through love, through caring. And so um, in America, we're, we were intended to be the Jesus model, that we want to care about people. We want to guarantee their rights. We want to protect them. We want to give them opportunities. We want to give them fairness. Where all the other systems is top down, ruled by fear. And if you're friends with the guy in, in the group of the ruling class, you're worth more. And if you're not, you're worth less. So hopefully this little um, look into the term Christian nationalism is helpful. Yeah, absolutely. That was um, uh, that was fascinating, Bill. Um, so, uh, do you feel? I mean, recently, Bill, there there was a, 
you know who James Carville is. He appeared on a late night talk show with Bill Maher and he made a shocking statement. He said that uh, our Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is a Christian nationalist. And then he said, Christian nationalists are more dangerous to America than Al Qaeda. Um, it, 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 we're getting the sense uh, that the left is using this moniker of Christian nationalism as a slur, as a scare tactic, as a way to create an us versus them atmosphere in America where Christians are identified as the problem. Um, are you seeing that as well? And um, what concerns do you have about that? Right, so what they're doing is something called psychological projection psychological projection. That's where the attacker blames the victim. It's called blame shifting. Accuse others of what you do. So they're accusing us of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And um, little kids do it. I didn't start the fight, you did. A cheating spouse will accuse the faithful spouse of being unfaithful. In psychology, it's the default narcissistic response when you are doing something wrong, you accuse the innocent person of what you're guilty of. You accuse the person that caught you of doing what you're doing. And, um, and so uh, uh, it's in the Bible. Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of lusting after her when she was lusting after him. Um, Nero set fire to Rome and he blamed the Christians. Um, the Apostle Paul was in the temple praying and the Pharisees grabbed him and they're pulling him apart and the Romans rescue him and then he has to go through a trial and the Pharisees say, we found this man, Paul, a pestilent fellow, ringleader, stirring up sedition. And Paul said, they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up a tumult, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. They stirred up the insurrection at the Capitol in Jerusalem and they wanted to blame innocent Paul. Hmm. And the, the Pharisees did it to Jesus. They call, they accused Jesus of being demon-possessed when they're the ones whose father was the devil and, and Adam did it to God. He blame-shifted. Adam sinned, but he said, well, it's the woman you gave me. Mm-hmm. And so he was, and so here you have the left. They're denying freedom of conscience. They're denying freedom of speech. They're denying human rights. I mean, here our constitution says what? Uh, a swift and, and speedy trial. There are people that have been accused and they're at January 6th and they have been in jail years waiting for a trial. This is, it breaks the constitution in its clearest form. The constitution says there shall be a quick and speedy trial. And here are these guys just wasting away on an accusation and um, and so they're denying human rights. Uh, they're killing innocent babies. And California actually had a bill to kill a baby 28 days after birth. These are, they're unsatiable. Um, and they wanna call some races inherently evil with the critical race theory. And they're purging the military. I was in Boston speaking and um, the family said, our daughter went to West Point and they locked all the cadets in a room and said, unless you embrace critical race theory, you're out. And they were in there all day long, all day long, finally one by one, they, they, would, they would cave and cave. And this, finally this one girl and, and her roommate who was Christian, who happened to be black, uh, they refused to, to cave to it and they were kicked out. So they're basically purging the military uh, of anybody that believes in traditional 
patriotic values that we're all equal. And why do they do that? Uh, dictators have two tools in their toolbox, fraud and force. And historically, they would use fraud and take away your freedoms and you let them because you believe the fraud. Oh, I'm taking away your freedom, but I'm doing it for your own benefit. It's like, well, okay. But then when enough people stop believing the fraud, their popularity drops. And there's only one other tool in the toolbox, force. And that's when they co-opt all the government agencies to push their agenda. Co-opt the IRS, co-opt the investigation, co-opt the Department of Justice, co-opt. And, and then the next step is to co-opt the military. And they want to purge the military of anybody with traditional values, with traditional Judeo-Christian morality. They want to replace it with not just the, the woke nationalism. They want to replace them with yes men who will mm -hmm. carry out the, the commands of the dictator at the top. And so fraud or force, we've basically stopped believing in the fraud. And so the only other weapon left is force. Um, and um, anyway, and then they want to cancel their political opponents. So they are doing to us what they're accusing us of doing to them, right? They want to um, uh, set up a woke nationalism. And so they're wanting to accuse us of wanting to do a Christian nationalism when it's the, the Christians that founded the country. Yeah. Um, well, know, we have, so, so, Bill, we have two minutes left in this segment, and, and that's not enough time, but I want to ask you to comment as quickly as you can on the, the long history in America of Christians being involved in government and advocating for, for principles, policies, and laws based on biblical values. Right, so um, in the Old Testament, you had two sections of ancient Israel, 400 years, no king, and then they got a King Saul. The, the no king period is called the Hebrew Republic, and they sinned in asking for a king when they got Saul. Why is this important? The kings of Europe looked to the King Saul and on part of the Bible, the divine right of kings. The founders of America looked to the pre-King Saul period, this uh, Hebrew Republic where you have millions of people, no king, everybody's taught the law and accountable to God to follow it. And so you had uh, people in Europe being burnt at the stake because the king had a theocracy. The king said, you have to believe what I tell you to believe. It's my dominion and I'm in charge and God put me here. And so it's, it's a fearful thing. America's founders said, no, we don't believe the way the king did and we don't want the government forcing us. And so they fled to America. And so the founding principle in America is freedom of conscience. So when they level any accusation, well, Christians want to set up a theocracy, it's like, hello, don't you know anything about America's founding? That's what we fled from. We wanted to get away from the King Saul and get back to, we rule ourselves by the consent of the governed, bottom up, freedom. And um, so uh, every colony was started by a different denomination. And then in the founding era, uh, I read through every state constitution. Nine of the original 13 state constitutions required all historicals to be Protestant, three just being a plain Christian. And then in the early 1800s, there's an Irish potato famine, millions of Irish Catholics come to America, and the Catholic percentage goes from 1% to 20%. There's a backlash, but then states accommodate them by changing it from requiring you to be a Protestant to just Christian. And the middle 1800s, persecution of Jews in Bavaria, they come across, they get tolerated. And then in the late 1800s, many states changed their constitution to say, all I got to do is believe in God. Mm -hmm. And so it was Christians expanding the circle, inviting more people to be tolerated. And now everybody's tolerated except the Christians that started the whole thing off. 
Well, brother, I'm sorry to say we're out of time on this segment and uh, I've got to let you go, but we should uh, get you back on soon to finish discussing this because it really is a huge subject. But on behalf of everybody watching today, thank you so much for joining me. I, it's been really educational. Uh, we really appreciate it. All right. Well, we're, yeah. So we're going to go to another break now and we'll be right back after about 90 seconds. Are you in ministry and want to connect with other like-minded ministers? Andrew Womack founded the Association of Related Ministries International, or ARMY, to serve, equip, and empower you for success in your ministry through relationships, community, and resources. But just being a part of this, uh, being filled with the Word of God and with ARMY, and fellowshipping, knowing that I have other ministers with me, it is awesome. We have met such precious people through Army. Uh, there's people I know I can call when I'm in a jam. Ministers have a safe place to come. We can unify and unite for the kingdom. As an Army member, some of the benefits you'll enjoy are Bible teaching correspondence courses, regional advocates for personal support and ministry, regional events for networking, one-on-one -on -one ministry and encouragement, our monthly newsletter, and more. You don't have to do ministry alone. Join this growing network of dynamic and elite ministers from across the U.S. and around the world today. Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. All right, we're back here on the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. We just finished in our last segment um, an interview with uh, renowned historian uh, Bill Federer. And uh, wow, that was so incredibly educational as it always is with Bill. What a, what a brilliant man. Uh, but, uh, but the next guest on our show is equally brilliant and also an incredible friend and ally, uh, co-host of the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. So I'm, I'm kind of making Alex get in the hot seat today. Uh, but I'm so happy to welcome you, Alex, on as a guest in this program uh, so you can share with us and our viewers on this um, really deeply concerning subject of national uh, Christian nationalism. This moniker, uh, I think, and I'm calling it a bigoted slur, actually, that is being used by the left against Bible believing Christians today in our country. It seems to be increasing in, in uh, popularity and everything like that. And we just published uh, uh, on our website and in our emails uh, an article that you wrote uh, that's called, if I, if I get it wrong, correct me, but it's called Christian Nationalism. Yes, please, and thank you for the compliment. Uh, I love the title. It's fascinating. Um, let's just start off, if we can, brother, by, by your basic thoughts about what, what do you think about this rise of, the, of this label called Christian Nationalism? What is going on out there, and do we need to be concerned? Uh, yes, we do need to be concerned. And, and first of all, Richard, let me say thank you for having me on. It It is a great honor to host Truth and Liberty alongside you, alongside Andrew Womack and uh, Dwayne Sheriff and all of our colleagues. And uh, now I'm, I'm actually 1,862 miles from the studio and to be interviewed is, is, it's different, but it's a great honor. But Richard, you know, I like to think that I'm a pretty good researcher and a detective, 
And for the life of me, I've been trying to find the actual origin of the term Christian nationalism, because uh, my little radar tells me that it's being used very strategically. Richard, yeah. in the last several months, leading up to the 2024 election, there are some words that we just incessantly see in the news, words like democracy, democracy, democracy. And another term, and I, I believe it is a slur intentionally manufactured and marketed by the left, and that is the term designed to make Christians uh, marginalized, but it's the term Christian nationalism. Now, we can talk a little bit about the uh, possible origins of this, but let's just say in its present usage, the term Christian nationalist and I'm a Christian, as are 130 million adult Americans. Uh, the Barna Research Group and George Barna, I've interviewed him, very, very trustworthy. So at least, you know, we're talking almost 30% of adult Americans. We believe in Christ Jesus, the Savior, and we care about the future of the country. So we're talking about the vast majority of adults, but yet the term Christian nationalist I believe is a blanket label intentionally designed to make us uh, be viewed as subversive, dangerous, undesirables. Yeah, amen. I agree 100% with that. And um, uh, the there's some theology involved here that I want to just ask you to sort of unpack here. Um, in my in the first segment of today's show, I talked about how that um, Orthodox Christianity has always taught and has always understood that every believer in Jesus Christ is responsible to be salt and light and to carry the light of the gospel into every sphere of human life and that the government has never been accepted from that. Um, and yet it seems like the implied message of this uh, smear called Christian nationalism is that you Christians, you, you're, the, you're the group that's not entitled to bring your core convictions into the public square. Um, and yet they're drawing on evangelical leaders to support this idea that somehow Christianity, true Bible Christianity, we leave government alone and we just, uh, all we do is preach the quote unquote true gospel because the kingdom of God, as you know, is within you and that God really cares about your heart and that can't be coerced. So let's leave government out of this. Um, can you break this down for us and help us understand who is right as a matter of doctrine and who is wrong just inside Christianity? Yeah, well, uh, for 2,000 years of uh, Western civilization, 2,000 years of the church, Christians, Bible-believing Christians from really the early church to the present moment, Richard, we understood that we have an obligation to the culture all around us. The Lord told us to be light and salt, right? Okay, the light of the gospel, the illumination of how to be saved and be in relationship with Almighty God, but not just light, but salt. Salt is medicinal. Salt is a preservative. Salt can heal things and restore things. And I think about from uh, turning the Roman Empire upside down and a very uh, a culture permeated with genocide and infanticide 
you know, my friend, he's in heaven now, the twice Pulitzer nominated sociologist, um, Rodney Stark. We talked about this many times and Dr. Stark, he wrote a very famous book called The Victory of Reason. And uh, also another uh, colleague that, uh, that I knew uh, to a degree personally, but it was the late D. James Kennedy. And he wrote a book called uh, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? Now, both Pulitzer-nominated scholar Rodney Stark and Dr. D. James Kennedy, Richard, they documented how the early church transformed the Roman Empire because of their ethic of life, their ethic of family, their ethics of honesty. And as Dr. Stark said, Christianity prevailed in Rome, quote, because it was just a better way to live. Now, we get up through the Middle Ages, we get up through uh, literacy and hospital and hygiene, and then we come up to the American Revolution and then the abolitionist movement and people like Harriet Tubman and uh, Frederick Douglass and through uh, the abolitionists of uh, Charles Finney and Oberlin College. And then the early 20th century, there were so many incredible movements. Here's my point, Richard. For those of us that, I mean, for those in our culture now that essentially say, how dare Christians bring their view to the public square? Well, then, you know, I guess people like Abraham Lincoln uh, must have been wrong. The abolitionists of the 19th century, were they wrong? People like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, championed the civil rights movement. And let me just say this, Richard. Um, uh, Dr. King's 1963 Pulitzer Prize winning book, Why We Can't Wait, which is the manifesto of the civil rights movement. I have read that book in its entirety at least a dozen times. Wow. I've studied that book like few other books I've ever studied. And Dr. King steeped the whole philosophy of the civil rights movement in the Bible and in Christianity. Uh, was he wrong? Of course not. So those of, uh, those of us that understand we have an obligation to God, we have an obligation to our nation and culture, uh, we are simply in step with the greatest traditions, not only of Western civilization, but of the United States of America itself. Well, yeah, uh, thank you, Alex. Fantastic. Um, and and yeah, the list of the the contributions to to the human condition by Christian leadership, specifically through influence on government, is a pretty long list, isn't it? Well, it is. You know, in in World War One, the recruitment posters uh, for soldiers. Um, there were posters, that, and they're online, they're easily to find. Uh, it would say, join Pershing's Crusaders, General Blackjack Pershing. The way he recruited men, the posters would have men that were like in army uniforms, but with, with a cross on them, because they believed that the cause of America, freedom, setting the captives free, uh, was was God's cause. Now, Eisenhower, um, after World War II, President Eisenhower wrote a book about, quote, our holy crusade through Europe. Um, in other words, 
And this goes up to Reagan. Richard, I'm old enough. Um, in Reagan's second term, I voted for Ronald Reagan. But he said this, if freedom is lost here, where else will the people of the world go for sanctuary? Because uh, we knew that uh, when Jefferson wrote the Declaration and when the founders broke from Britain, they would use this phrase. They said uh, in breaking away from the king, they said, appealing to God for the rectitude of our intentions. In other words, if we don't respond to the king's, quote, abuses and usurpations, we'll answer to God for it. Now, here we are in 2024, and those of us that believe in the actual philosophical foundation of the Constitution, which is natural law, that is the philosophical foundation of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. If we believe in things like uh, the rights of taxpaying citizens, we believe in a strong national defense, we believe in being a friend to our only stable ally in the Middle East, the nation of Israel. We believe that it is just to have secure borders north and south. We believe in accountability and that when people break the law, there should be due process, but there should be accountability and representation. In other words, the things that have made us stable, sustainable, and actually prosperous Richard, we're, we're demonized and labeled as Christian nationalists when actually what conservatives today advocate for are simply the things that have undergirded our nation for now a quarter millennia. Well, and, and Alex, uh, you, were, you referred to Ronald Reagan. Let me share a quote with you, which I'm sure you've heard before, but this is from Ronald Reagan. He said, of the many influences that have shaped the United States of America into a distinctive nation and people, none, I think we should underline that, none may be said to be more fundamental and enduring than the Bible. The Bible and its teachings help form the basis of the Founding Fathers' abiding belief in the inalienable right of the individual, rights which they found implicit in the Bible's teachings of the inherent worth and dignity of the individual. Um, can, can you comment on that, brother? Does America, are, how deep is the tradition in this nation of Christians being involved in government, advocating for biblical values, biblical principles, and laws that are consistent with Scripture? Well, it, it has been our uniqueness forever. Uh, and again, folks, there is a concerted effort to push God, morals, Christianity, Scripture out of the public square and yet, from the very beginning, these things have been not only part of America, but really most would say what made us strong and unique. Let me quote from a Time Magazine interview, 1954. Um, the Supreme Court Justice um, uh, Earl Warren, yes. Chief Justice Earl Warren, he said this, and I quote verbatim, he said, no one can read the history of our country without realizing that from the very beginning, the good book and the spirit of the Savior have been our guiding genius. Now, when Chief Justice Earl Warren referred to the good book, he was referring to the Bible. Uh, the spirit of the Savior is the very same thing that uh, Truman in uh, 1950, when 
uh, President Harry Truman was giving a speech to the American Attorneys General, Truman, President Harry Truman, and, and I guess I would ask the question, was he right or was he wrong? But Truman said that America was based on Moses, Isaiah, Matthew, and Paul. Now, when President Harry Truman said that our nation, our founding documents, our system of government was based on Moses, he's talking about Exodus 20, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. When he talked about Isaiah, he was referencing the fact that our three branches of government are really derived from Isaiah's allusion to God as being prophet, priest, and king, three offices of our Savior. And then from Matthew, he was talking about Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, what uh, the Greek philosophers call the law of general beneficence. In other words, love your neighbor, do good, help those you can help. And then finally, the Apostle Paul, when President Truman said our government was also drawn from the Apostle Paul, uh, Richard, he was talking about Romans 13, 1 through 7, about the powers that be. Now, now, here is my point. When Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren said that our country was based on, quote, the good book and the spirit of the Savior, he was talking about these things that today are controversial. But look, when, when it was uh, my distant cousin, Woodrow Wilson, or when it was a Truman or an Eisenhower or even a Lyndon Baines Johnson or a Reagan, um, nobody would have batted an eye. But let me give you another exhibit. Um, forgive me for taking the ball and running with it. But, no, go for it. Yeah, this is great. Um, I went to graduate school at Liberty University. And shortly before I went to Liberty, um, uh, Ted Kennedy spoke at Liberty University. And uh, Dr. Jerry Falwell, the founder of Liberty, uh, who would be castigated today if he were still on the, the public horizon because he believed in God and he cared about this country. But he invited Arch Democrat Ted Kennedy to speak at Liberty. It's on YouTube. I would urge people to watch it. Ted Kennedy comes out, Arch, Arch, liberal Democrat, and he spoke at Liberty and Ted Kennedy uh, from Massachusetts, he said, well, Dr. Falwell and I disagree on so many things, but one thing we both agree on is that America was founded as a Christian country. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ted Kennedy said that, not, yeah. not just Bill Federer or David Barton or Alex McFarland. So here's my point, Richard, this idea of Christian nationalism and Christianity in the public square is different and new and aberrant this is a very, very recent um, liberal trope designed. I, I think it's their intent is to make Christianity, patriotism, Christian nationalism. They want it to be a slur that will cower Christians back into the shadows, uh, will be silent, and the woke socialist juggernaut will simply continue to roll across this nation. Absolutely, exactly how I see it, Alex. And um, there's a couple of things, though, that are uh, that, that I'd like to, to bring out and get your viewpoint on, because um, it seems like that some of the rhetoric 
um, from the left is trying to tie Christians to uh, racism and to violence. Um, so in some circles, when this phrase Christian nationalism is thrown out, they actually call it white Christian nationalism, and they say that it originates in uh, racist uh, uh, ideology in the South, okay? So you know how the, the left loves to um, pretend like the South is still under Jim Crow and, uh, and everything like that, and they, they just get so much mileage out of that narrative. But, um, the, uh, and then the other thing is, is linking, trying to link uh, conservative Christians to violence. Um, so they, they even go so far as to say that Christian nationalists were behind the January 6th so-called attack on the Capitol um, and other extremist groups and things of this nature. Are you seeing this as well? What do you make of it? Are you concerned about them conflating these issues? Uh, well, I, I think they are conflating these issues, and I think it's very intentional. Mm -hmm. And uh, Richard, let, let me share something, if I may, and, and this might be anecdotal, but I, I think it's actually worth bringing up. Uh, and as, as a, a son of the South, the southeastern U.S. is something I know a little bit about. And I, I happen to know that the racism of the, the post uh, abolition, post-Reconstruction era, look, where there was racism, it was tragic. And the, the way that m many black Americans were treated and even to this moment are treated uh, is very sad, but you've got to understand, folks, the Jim Crow racist KKK South came from Democrat circles. Absolutely. I, I mean, the, the Jim Crow laws and, and the militant, violent segregationalists, they were not Republicans, and they certainly were not Christian. And so if, if you're talking about getting, getting rid of the bias and the racism uh, from the Democrat-led Jim Crow South, this Southerner is all for it. Uh, but I want to say this, too, and this might be anecdotal. Um, Richard, over the last 30 years, it's been my privilege to speak in more than 2,200 American churches. A lot of them are in the deep, the deepest of the deep South, the Gulf states, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, been all over there time and time again. And I'm talking about Christianity. Honest, my hand to the Lord, Richard, I've been in independent fundamental churches little bitty rural churches, Houston, Dallas, mega churches, throughout the, the South, in churches where they've invited me to speak, and I've done it, hundreds and hundreds of churches. The lower 48 states have been to every state at least half a dozen times. And the Bible Belt, every, I mean, you throw a dart at the southeastern U.S., I don't care where that dart lands, I've been there within two hours of wherever that dart lands. Here's my point. I've never, never heard racial epithets. I've stayed in the homes of pastors, deacons. And, and my point being, true Christianity, and I, I think like, like few people, I've seen it firsthand. 20, I mean, 2,200 American churches. Um, true Christianity is about the love of Jesus. 
it's about the fact that we're all made in God's image. We're all sinners for whom Christ died. I've never, never heard any racial slurs or racial sentiment in the homes or the churches of America's Christian leaders. And so the idea that Christianity uh, perpetuates or in any way stands for racism, it's just not true. Scripturally, it's not there, and practically, it's, it's not there. It's a slander, and it's false representation. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, to some extent, um, well, it's, it's not, uh, it's, it's forced guilt by association. Uh, oh, this group, these Proud Boys, for example, they also stormed the Capitol, so that means all Christians are like the Proud Boys, um, you know, this kind of thing. So, but, but let me try to get in another subject before our show ends here, um, Alex. And it's the idea that's also, uh, to me, it's implicit in this bigoted slur of Christian nationalism. The, it's, it's an accusation that Christians want to impose a theocracy and a religious tyranny uh, in America. Um, now, can you comment on that? Is that, a, um, is that implied in Christian nationalism, and is it a fair accusation? Uh, it is, well, I, it is implied in the way that the left wants to use that term to slander or attempt to slander Christians. But those of us that care about the Constitution and the rule of law know, a thousand times no, we do not wish to establish, establish a theocracy. And, and Richard, let me, let me say, it was my privilege, I knew Jerry Falwell preached in his church three or four times, preached at Liberty. I knew Chuck Colson sat with his family at his funeral in the National Cathedral. By the way, George W. Bush was uh, there as well. I worked for James Dobson. Uh, I've been on the radio with the American Family Association for 14 years. So many of the people that would um, accuse our uh, Christian brothers and sisters of Christian nationalism, look, I've known these people. I, I helped bring David Barton to Greensboro, North Carolina in 1997. I've known Bill Federer, you know, for 20 years plus. So I know the, the pillars of, of the conservative movement and have been, uh, I've been in more, uh, you know, strategy sessions than you could imagine. And I'm telling you, no, we do not want to establish a theocracy. Now, let me, let me explain two words that have to be kept in clear focus. One is soteriology, one is morality. Now, soteriology uh, that speaks of the specifics of religion and salvation. Now, hey, people can believe whatever they want to believe. As a minister, obviously, I hope people would have a relationship with Christ and be saved. But what we have to point out is, and I, I think many on the left, uh, they stand against um, morals ignorantly thinking they're standing against the enforcement of one particular soteriology. But what's so dangerous to our country, Richard, is this, that the, uh, the personalization of religion, and of course, we are pluralistic in the sense, you can believe whatever you want to believe, 
If you don't, don't want to believe in Jesus, you don't have to, sadly. But that's been extrapolated to mean the abolition of all moral boundaries. And so when we say, look, the Declaration, Constitution, Bill of Rights make no sense unless we all assume an absolute moral code, they think that the advocacy for morals is the establishment of religion, and it's not at all. Hey, to the left, you don't want to be religious? Lose your soul. That's your prerogative. I'm sorry, but what we can't let the world do is abolish all moral foundation because in the absence of moral truth, all we're left with is anarchy, which is just about what we've got at this present moment. Yeah. Well, Alex, that's a, that's an awesome uh, answer. So uh, a theocracy is where um, the government mandates and controls religious worship and expression and participation. Um, Christians in America, uh, Bible-believing Christians, have never really advocated for that. But what we do say is that um, when it comes to government, we have to decide, no matter whether you believe in God or not, we have to decide what our standards are. And we as believers are going to bring into that discussion and are, are, are entitled to and duty-bound to bring into that discussion the truth as we understand it. And that is rooted in the Holy Bible. And the left seems to be saying, uh, you can't, you, that's one category that's off limits. Like Jerry Nadler saying it was uh, impermissible for another fellow member of Congress to read from the Bible on the floor of the House of Representatives. This radical secularism, that is not who America is or never was intended to be. We've never been that country. Um, uh, that's basically um, uh, one step away from Marxist uh, totalitarianism. And, and so um, anyway, that's just uh, part of what we can say. Uh, as I said to Bill, who was on before you, we could talk about this for hours and we, we really need to, um, but we're really kind of out of time today. We have about one minute left and I just want to give you that uh, option. Any closing thoughts or remarks on this whole subject? What would you like to say to the church right now in this hour on the subject of, of Christian nationalism? Well, uh, to all the churches, to the 100 million plus adults who are Christians, and to the half million ordained pastors out there, look, uh, we are rapidly losing our freedoms, and we must pray, stay informed, influence others, and if you're in a position of leadership, whether it be preaching in a pulpit, teaching a class, uh, being a voice in the lives of those around you, for goodness sakes, influence people to vote and to vote godly because our beloved America seriously hangs in the balance. Amen. Amen. That's amazing. So, uh, all right. Well, Alex, I think this show is airing on February 19th and you are actually up tomorrow, February 20th, uh, to host Truth and Liberty. So I hope everybody will tune in and catch that program. And uh, it's always good to be with you and to hear your insights and experience. Well, how blessed we are, Truth and Liberty, to have you on the team. So God bless you, brother. We'll talk to you soon. To all the rest of you, be sure to tune in tomorrow to Truth and Liberty and check out our website where you can find hundreds of helpful resources. We love you all. In Jesus' name, goodbye. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. 
Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.